You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In the final episode of the Sydney Dialogue Summit Sessions, Aspie's David Rowe speaks to David Waterhouse, Managing Director of Hypersonics. They discuss how the company Hypersonics came about, what hypersonic technology is and how it fits into defence strategy, as well as the future of Australia's defence industry. I'm David Rowe and I'm here with Dave Waterhouse, CEO of Hypersonics Launch Systems. Dave is a space sector and telecommunications industry veteran with 30 years experience in senior management roles for blue chip companies in Australia, Asia and Europe. Dave, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Dave. Welcome. Start a bit by telling us please a bit about uh, the work that Hypersonics does and a bit about Hypersonics. For dummies like me, what's a scramjet? How is it different uh, from a regular rocket or jet engine? Okay, um, hypersonics, uh, we specialize in scramjets and hypersonic flyers. Um, my co-founder and I started the business just over three years ago. Um, Michael's background, uh, Michael and I met at University of Queensland. We both did engineering together there. I went off on the satellite side of things. I'm a satellite engineer by trade. Michael went off and worked at NASA for 10 years, developing scramjets as part of the NASA program. Uh, we got together about three, four years ago, and we said, well, we've finished the research on this. It's time to commercialize, make it real. Three or four years ago, not many people had heard of hypersonics. Um, so it was uh, uh, truly deep tech in that regard. Um, so we, we went about basically explaining what the opportunities of the technology were. Uh, we we're fortunate we received a commercialization grant from the Department of Industry, and we used that to build a prototype scramjet uh, and fuel system. And since then, you know, the business has really taken off. We came up with a, the notion of a, an MVP, so basically a, a simple prototype to demonstrate the technology. We released that, and then three weeks later, China did this overflight using a hypersonic boost glide missile over Australia, over the US. And all of a sudden, we went from being the back of the conference room to right up front and center. It turns out our MVP is exactly what defense needs at the moment in terms of something... Uh, it's really is a test platform, so a multi-mission test platform. So it's it's a means of testing things in hypersonic flight, testing the detect and defend against systems, um, and so we've got some great traction with that. And uh, you know things are really on the move. I think you were making the point yesterday, and apologies if it was somebody else, but um, you, you've had some publicity for better or worse from two particular world leaders. Over the last exactly. We it, so you know. Xi and Putin have done a great marketing job for us, much better than we could do. And again, they've really brought hypersonics, for perhaps all the wrong reasons, front and center. Now, hypersonics are more than just a missile technology. It's really a fundamental improvement on the way we use the atmosphere for flight. Um, you know, hypersonics, so it it's works from Mark 5 up to about Mark 12. So that's five times the speed of sound. When you reach that speed, we, we basically have a system that compresses the air we, we use hydrogen for fuel. Hydrogen's a great fuel. Uh, very high ISP, much better than, than kerosene or avgas. And we use that to basically accelerate from Mark 5 all the way up to Mark 12. What's unique about our technology, it's something called fixed geometry. So that means no moving pieces. And we can accelerate without having to change the shape of the form factor. Now that helps us both in terms of reliability, ease of manufacture, um, but at ability to accelerate opens up all sorts of applications, including, for example, satellite launch. 
And it was really that satellite launch side of things where we started. It was all about green, sustainable access to space, hydrogen, green hydrogen, great, great fuel, only byproduct water, fully reusable. And, and we can do that because I, the rocket equation doesn't apply. That's because effectively I'm, ca- I'm using air rather than having to carry oxygen. So, so particularly for small satellites, it's the most effective way of launching. Because I, I'm not mass constrained the same way, I can make a reusable platform. So think of like a, a flying plane, except I'm accelerating all the way up to, to Mark 12. Then I come back and land again, which means I can take off in any direction, service any orbit. So you can see, you know, there's huge potential there. And it's a different way of looking at how we launch satellites. So that's how we started. We then sort of got distracted with this defense side of things. Um, but you can still see how the technology has got, you know, pardon the pun, wings on it. You know, we, we can, yes, there are defense applications, there are also commercial applications. There's other applications where we look at high-speed transport, for example. Um, again, trillion-dollar sector, but if I can travel from, you know, Sydney to London in one and a half hours, yes, that's great for passengers, but it's also great for things like transporting goods. So very interesting. So, excuse me, while I zoom in for a moment on the defence side of things, as a capability, how do hypersonics? I mean, what what's the strategic significance, and how how do they fit in with that broad, with that integrated deterrence uh, approach? Okay, so hypersonics is very interesting. I, I, obviously, Russia and China stole the march on 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 the West, and it's very interesting. You know, the work Michael was doing at at, at NASA ten fifteen years ago, and basically that work just stopped. Um, and it was seen as a, a nice, exquisite technology, very niche, but irrelevant from the US, particularly when it came to a projection of force side of it. What they failed to understand at the time was their need to be able to defend against. So, so sorry, if I can just interrupt, it, it stopped because there was a there was a diminution of interest in the US. Before. It was seen as cannibalizing other capabilities. So mm-hmm. you already had a cruise missile. Who cares if it takes an extra six minutes to deliver the nuke? You know, right. paraphrasing, but but so there, there was plenty of other offensive capability that could be matched, and what they didn't realize at the time was it wasn't so much that it was the impact it would have on their ability to project force. So particularly carriers. So hypersonics are seen as carrier killers. It's it, it's very interesting and very it suits particularly the Russian and Chinese strategy in my view because it's one of these gray areas. It's not a, a regulated. Defense uh, technology, you know, it's not like your nukes or ICBMs. So there's no regulatory or treaties around hypersonics. With a hypersonic missile, you could fire it. It's very difficult to intercept. It's a kinetic weapon. Doesn't actually need to carry a warhead because you know it's mass times velocity squared. You're traveling at Mark five, Mark six, weigh a few hundred kilos. You know, and the the, the interesting thing is, you know, uh, very difficult to intercept. Your traditional anti-missile technology just doesn't work. Your traditional detection technology doesn't work either because it's flying at a different altitude, different profile to, to what you get with your other systems. But it could break the back of the carrier, but not kill everyone on board. So what that means is effectively the carrier fleet has to stand further off, which means they in turn do not have their ability to send air, air and other forces that far. So you, so you can see how it fundamentally changes that global balance of power, particularly the remote projection of force. Does that make sense? So, no, so that's why sense. it's so important. The, the other interesting thing when you look at it structurally, you know, typically 
for defense budgets, you spend 80% on offense, 20% on defense, right? So the development that has been happening in the US has really been on the offensive side. So they have a boost glide. China's got a, a well-developed boost glide system. Boost glide is basically use a traditional rocket. You launch to about 120 kilometers, Mark 25. This thing can circle the globe, but maneuver. So hard to intercept, do a lot of damage. Um, the other systems like the Russian Kazal, and that's uh, an air-launched kerosene-powered well, scramjet. Rocket's got a range of about four or 500 kilometers. Again, difficult to intercept. America's been focusing really on those boost glide and kerosene rocket type things. They've struggled a bit with the technology, to be honest. They've had the Hawk and the Arrow program. Both have suffered a lot of failures. But, but the thing is, that's not really what's important to America. What is What they really need is the defend against systems, because that is far more important than more offensive capability, if that makes sense. So that's the part of the technology we're aiming to help with. We have a platform that can mimic both Boost Glide and, and those air launch systems. And it's really the ability to get data, to track, to detect, and to try and shoot down, which is really important. Now, America's had, I think, eight, nine launches over the last two years. Four of them have been failures. The most recent one was a failure as well, even though it flew straight. Um, and, and what they're really struggling with from a technology point of view is the ability to maneuver and the ability to get that real-time data back. And it's that data which is gold because it's that data that allows you to better model and predict what the bad guys are going to be doing with their systems. And, and hence, test vehicles are obviously uh, critical. Uh, you've recently won a contract from the USDOD's uh, Defence Innovation Unit, or DIU. Yeah. That's to provide a hypersonic test vehicle. Um, congratulations on that. Why did the DIU select hypersonics? Uh, and are there lessons for other Australian companies in your success there? Yeah, look, I, I think, so there's several things um, I'd like to say around that. First of all, DIU, wonderful organization, wonderful structure set up. What they're trying to do is take DARPA, but give it West Coast uh, funding and responsiveness. And the aim is to really try and enable small businesses to contribute to the fighting force capabilities. And and I, th I think, you know, it's that sense of urgency. They've realized, don't get me wrong, the primes are wonderful. They do a great job at what they do. But we don't have 10 years to, to field these systems. You know, we need to be able to do things quicker. And that's where there's a natural fit with small business. We, we, we had take a higher risk profile, we're faster, fail fast, forward, don't forget the forward piece. Um, but we can innovate rapidly and use that process and that risk profile to deliver things to defense that they wouldn't get through working through the traditional prime approach. It's a significant part to play, and I think it, it's great that they've recognized that and they've used DIU to enable that. Um, the program we're with, it, it's HiCat, and it's basically high cadence test. So that the whole idea is come up with something where we can do rapid tests. You know, we don't want a beautiful, exquisite design that takes 18 months, two years, costs $2 billion to build. We want 10 or 20 of these, you know, launching multiple times per month. And, you know, if one fails, so what? Cheap, cheerful, reliable platform that we can then use as a baseline to test other technologies. And that, that's where we come in. And it, we've looked at this problem in a, in a different way. We, instead of, we've tried to keep it simple, you know, good old Australian ingenuity so that no moving parts. We had a look at manufacturing. So a lot of these other, you know, 
tech demonstrators, they have a look at the technology, but they never really think about the next bit. Um, we've intentionally gone in with 3D printing. So we had a look at what we could build using existing available off-the-shelf commercial technology and do some clever engineering around that to overcome issues to do with thermal profile and other things that make it difficult. We've, we've made our, our baseline product sort of plug and play when it comes to boost. There's all sorts of different boost technologies out there. We designed it so we could use unguided sounding rockets. These things spin at three to five hertz. So you have to be careful with your center of gravity, your weight, your lift and all that sort of stuff. But that opens up a whole range of different mission profiles you can use this with. And I think that's what attracted DIU to us. Uh, we're not a missile platform. You know, we're, we're a technology platform that they can use for the development of technology along those lines, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I mean, I suppose through the approach that you took, um, does it, are there, are there obvious, like I said, lessons for other Australian companies to say, okay, well, um, perhaps if, um, if, we, if we don't have an obvious customer here in Australia, uh, we can look to, to these sorts of programs in the US. I mean, are there... Yeah, I, I, th I think that's very true. And, and again, we, we've struggled to get traction with Australian defence. Um, and, and, and again, it's, it's, it's just they are what they are. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think they recognise their inherent issues, particularly with how they work with small business, and they're taking steps to improve that. So, you know, I think long term that the strategy, the direction they're moving is the right direction. I, I think one of, one of the things, and this is what I was saying yesterday, it's very important. We, 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 we're great at early stage technology, TRL 1 to 3. We're, we're you know, amongst the top five in the OECD. But we're outside of the OECD, I think 81, like the minister said yesterday, when it comes to how we commercialize that technology. And that gap in the middle, I think Heidi Shu, Assistant Secretary of Defense, calls it the valley of death. And that's TRL 5 to TRL 9. We need in Australia, we have the technology to go there, but we do not have the funding and financing to take the small companies there. And as a small company, you can't go six months without money. You know, you're trying to grow fast, so you're spending what you can. It's that balance between growth and you need to innovate quickly. And unless we sort out that problem of funding and financing, you know, we're never going to be successful on this. And that would be a real shame. And I think it is great with this AUKUS framework. I think now, you know, one of the, the great things about the DIU is they've recognized the importance of small business and that defense um, opportunity. They've enabled it that particular way. I think as Australia, we can learn from that. I think as well, particularly with AUKUS, it no longer is a matter of servicing the Australian market or the US market. At the end of the day, we're hoping it's going to be one market anyway. And we want that from an interoperability point of view. We want that in terms of growth and manufacturing capabilities. So with hypersonics as one of the more prominent fields in AUKUS Pillar 2, are you seeing any benefits so far? Uh, how do you expect it to help you over the longer term? Well, and again, AUKUS is a great framework. Um, and, and the great thing about AUKUS is top down, we're really starting to see that, that support. You're starting to also see this recognition of joint opportunities. One of, one of the things we've been advocating for is a hypersonic overland test range. And that's something that's very interesting for the Americans at the moment. They have to do all their launches over the ocean, and it's very hard to recover. That could be done here in Australia. And that could be done here in Australia. You know, we've got perfect. We've got all the building blocks for that range today. And again, Space Agency and a few others are working on trying to put something together on that. And that will be great for Australia because when you think about it, the infrastructure involved in the testing will also help underpin things like sovereign launch capability. Um, 
it will also naturally, I think, bring manufacturing and technical capabilities along there. And, and, and again, hypersonics is one of these technologies where Australia leads the world. You know, we, we, it's the technology is being exported, not imported from the US. So I think we can really make a, a valuable contribution to the alliance that way. Um, so, so I think certainly top down, it's great having that support. Um, I've been traveling to the US a number of times this year already. And again, people are very aware of AUKUS, uh, certainly in the circles, they're trying to figure out ways, you know, ways of making it work. And the big challenge has been everyone straight away thinks AUKUS, oh, well, that's 10, 20, 30 years for subs. When you look at Pillar 2, it's it's the next two to five years they want to get some traction. So in a way, Pillar 2 will be used to set a lot of things, such as the ITAR framework, how we how we handle the exchange of, of, of technology, how we can work together closely and hopefully remove a lot of those barriers. So I think in summary, it's a good thing. I think day to day, it's going to be a, a little while before the rubber hits the roads. Um, but having said that, it, it gives us a, a clear pathway and it does take an element of risk. When you look at it from an investor perspective, it removes some of that risk about how we service that market. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, collaboration is obviously one of the, the sort of buzzwords around AUKUS, the removal of, yeah. uh, of or reduction of barriers. You talked about ITAR, for instance. Um, I mean, that and the increasing focus I mean, it's, there's been focus for a while, but uh, I, I guess the universal appreciation of dual use. Uh, technologies and and the the, the value of public private uh, collaboration certainly uh, other countries who don't share our strategic interests are very focused on that kind of approach. Um, are you? I mean, noting you said the rubber was yet to hit the road. Are you are you seeing good intentions starting to translate into actions? I'd say they're starting to. It's early days yet. And and to be fair, when you think of AUKUS as a framework, it, it's it's really all about facilitating an environment for exchange of technology, sovereign capability, and this is the first time, this is why I think there's a generational opportunity here. For the first time, you're starting to see America want Australia to actually set up a, a local manufacturing capability, more than just box moving. And that that's a big shift. And you add that to the fact that now trying to directly involve small businesses rather than work through crimes, and that will really suit Australia well. You know, and, and it's, if you have a look at the structure of our industry, our light industry, where we can work well, you know, you look at these modern manufacturing technologies, things like 3D printing and high temperature alloys, high temperature composites. We are very well suited to that. And when you look at supply chain issues, you know, at the moment, 80, 90 percent of your 3D printed powders have come out of, out of China, even though 90 percent of their materials come from Australia and the West. So you can clearly see there's some opportunities for putting together that surety of supply. Now, whether that's under an AUKUS umbrella or something else, you know, there are clearly some opportunities there, but this is an opportunity for us to set up a sovereign capability and the structure to support that sovereign capability. Um, now, another big part of that is the investment side of things as well. Again, the, the, historically, Australia's VC market's very thin. There's virtually nothing in light industrial or, or defense, which is sort of where we sit. You compare that with the US where they have a lot of depth and on top of that you have your dual use technology and Patriot funds. So the ability to allow US investment in Australia tech and vice versa make it easier will will certainly help as well build up Australian industry capability. Um, You know, 12 months ago you would have had to have a US operation and a US company for the US VCs to invest. Now that's starting to change. 
So, you know, there's a lot of things that, that you know, the technology is just the pointy end. There's all the things that go under that. And really, you've got to think about regulatory. You've got to think of funding and financing as well. And hopefully, AUKUS will bring all of that together in a framework. One thing, uh, one final question just to wrap up. I mean, progress on uh, Australia's space sector generally. You mentioned yeah. sovereign launch, uh, for instance, as, um, uh, as, as something that we can um, uh, pursue through that, uh, that testing uh, that you talked about. How are we doing overall? Uh, there's a lot of talk about it, but um, how are we progressing? What would you like to see more of? Okay. I, I, I think, you know, again, the space sector in Australia is nascent, even though we've been doing it for a long time. Um, and the space agency is doing a great job moving in the right direction. I think, I think we have to remember we've got to be globally competitive to attract. And this gets back to that third pillar I was talking about, regulatory. We have a real opportunity to make it really, really easy to launch from Australia. And at the moment, we're not. We're just another me too. You have a look at what New Zealand did. They actually adopt the US, so they use the FAA for their regulatory, which is kind of easy because 80, 90% of the launches are from the US anyway. So you can sort of see how that works. I think what we need to do, where there's a real opportunity for us is to adopt world's best practice, try and make it simpler, try and make it transparent because again, we're globally competing, right? And I I think the regulatory, if, if you have a look at disruption, it's not technology itself. It, it's the regulatory environment in which you use the technology that can really make a difference. And again, with hypersonics, we've got an opportunity there. Nobody's regulated for hypersonics. Um, if we can come up with a, a launch regime and a regime for hypersonics here, we can literally lead the world on all of this. So I think, you know, wonderful opportunities. Um, and again, when we talk about space access, as I think I started off by saying, you know, we, we believe hypersonics is the key to, to sustainable access to space. Um, and again, there's a huge opportunity here. Not just, you know, we have to be globally relevant in what we're doing. So it's not just for the Australian market, it's globally and what we can do in terms of enabling that technology to be a global leader in that space. Terrific insights, David. Um, thanks for your time. Thanks for contributing to the Sydney Dialogue. Thanks, David. Cheers. That's a wrap on the Sydney Dialogue Summit Session series. If you've missed any episodes, you can revisit all of the conversations from the series on your preferred podcast app. We'll be back to regular programming next week before launching our next limited series, Hacking for Cash. Thanks for listening.